Hello, and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and crap. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're talking about a whole bunch of topics. Repentance and vocation for our Christian lives. And for writers, we're taking one last sweeping look at defining your audience, tropes, and why the end of The Lord of the Rings works. Let's get rolling. Well, one piece of good news, I wrote more of book four. (laughs) I'd like to say I'm back to writing a lot, but it's not quite there yet. Still a lot of things going on with the podcast, with trying to do some learning and reading and stuff on marketing and things like that. Trying to make the most of the fact that I have three books now. Working on some changes to the website, which by the time this comes out, it should be up. So if you want to head over to danieldideck.com and you'll notice that the menu bar at the top has some new words. It is now, instead of just books, it says the Triumvirs, since that's the series. And you'll notice a brand new blurb for what the entire series is kind of about to a degree, or at least you know the premise behind this series. So check that out. Let me know what you think. If you know me well enough, you can text me. If not, you can either leave a note on the website through the contact form or find me on facebook.com slash author or on Twitter at Daniel Didek and drop me a line. Let me know if you like, like what it says. And then also on there, provided everything goes well with the podcast name change, then that menu item will be called In Faith Podcast. So you'll be able to go there to access the episodes right on my website. If you haven't yet, don't forget to sign up for a free story. I'm going to be sending out another newsletter to my subscribers in the next week or so, kind of wrapping up what's been going on in June, maybe a little bit of a look ahead into July. And I think the rust is slowly coming off the gears in the head. So that the ideal is still to get back to my 500 words a day. Once I do that... I'll be a little more confident with rearranging the schedule for writing the first draft. Right now, I'm probably too far behind to catch up, but it's early in the year, at least as far as that goes. It's early in the process of writing the first draft, so anything can change. I could hit an awesome writing streak, and next thing you know, the book is done. So still moving forward on that. For now, let's go ahead and dive into the episode. Here we are, six months in. It's been six months since I started this podcast. I think that's pretty fun. And now we are on our last episode for the time being of Writing in Faith. Today, though, the only real connection between our devotional portion and our writing portion is that we're going to cover a random assortment of topics, as I mentioned in the intro. Especially these things don't necessarily need an entire episode, since a lot of it's kind of cleaning up or clarifying some things I said in the past. And also some of these things are odds and ends I've just sort of accumulated throughout the last several months of doing this podcast, things I didn't have time to get into or whatever. And so, you know, we're just going to spend a couple minutes on each of these, these topics. The first one that I wanted to touch on today in our devotion is repentance. Now, it kind of surprised me that I didn't get any backlash or really even much unsolicited feedback a few weeks ago when in the episode on salvation, I said that you didn't need to repent to be saved. Uh, Maybe the immediate context that I said it in saying how your salvation didn't come and go every time God showed you a sin you had been committing was enough to kind of explain that statement away. I hope, for all of our sakes, that no one thought you could go on living the way you had and still be saved. Hopefully you already know that that's not the case, 
or I had made that clear in the episode and in many other episodes where we've talked on kind of similar issues. But the Salvation episode was kind of a weird one in how it came to be recorded and published. That was a week where I was running desperately behind. I didn't get to the script early enough in the week, so I ended up throwing together an outline only on Thursday afternoon, recorded the whole episode on Thursday night, Hated it, or most of it, certainly the devotional portion, so I wrote out the script for the devotion on Friday morning, re-recorded that Friday night, then edited the whole episode together on Saturday morning. Usually it's done Friday morning, and all I have to do is submit the file, name it, and publish it on Saturday morning. So when I was editing it on Saturday, I got to the phrase saying you didn't need to repent, And I had considered recording another bit to kind of fill in that gap. But then I continued, finished editing, and promptly published it. Then afterward remembered that I had maybe wanted to record a different section. But by then it was kind of too late, so I just didn't worry about it. So I let it go and hoped you would all understand what I meant. And it seems like you did. But I do want to take a moment here to clarify, in case as more people pick up this podcast, some of them start to wonder what I meant. I do still stand by what I said, in the context that I said it. Since you cannot repent of all your future sins, since you don't know what they necessarily are, the only two things you need to do is believe and say, as our passage told us. But I do want us to understand that in order to believe and say, there must already be a certain degree of repentance in us. We cannot recognize our need for a savior, nor can we believe and say that Christ is Lord without turning away from our old life. And that's what repentance indicates. Not just confession, that's part of it, but a turning. You were heading one way, you recognized that way, that direction, was taking you somewhere you did not want to go, so you turned away from it and turned specifically to the cross. If you say, Jesus is my Lord, but don't obey his commands, he simply isn't your Lord. This is more than just a word or some honorific title. It doesn't turn him from simply Jesus to Mr. Jesus. It's probably harder for us today, especially in America, to consider the term Lord and what that means, so far removed as we are from medieval monarchy. In our Western independence and individuality, the term Lord just kind of carries with it a bit of rank, a title as we've said, something we read in fantasy. But in truth, a Lord is, or was, a non-democratic leader, caretaker, dictator. You could not pick and choose which of your Lord's commands you obeyed. If he said do, you did. And you could not debate with your Lord or offer alternative ideas or threaten to kick him out of office and put in a different Lord that you thought you liked better. It's interesting, as a side note, how Christian we think America is. But then you look at Paul's warning to Timothy that we touched on last week, that in times to come, people would gather around them those who told them what their itching ears want to hear. And isn't that exactly where our democratic practice has brought us? In a way, it could have no other end. Perhaps there are times and people who vote for what they think is best for the country with no regard for personal gain. But even inherent in that vote is the assumption that you personally are best qualified to make that judgment. But as we draw nearer and nearer to Christ's return, and the battle seems to shift more and more in Satan's favor as he gains more and more of a hold on the world, turning people's desires to themselves and their own comfort, we should not be surprised that people think more and more selfishly and vote for leaders who tell them exactly what they want to hear. Anyway, sorry to get political. Back to our point. When we say Jesus is Lord, that is supposed to be a permanent appointment until he dies and the heir succeeds the throne, but of course Jesus will never die. So to say Jesus is Lord is automatically to turn away from our own direction under our own authority, to give that up, surrender it to him, to accept his authority over our lives, 
and begin to obey his commands without question or debate. So that level of repentance is necessary for salvation, and I feel is kind of automatic. Basically, if you aren't that level of repentant, you aren't truly calling out to be saved, and you don't acknowledge Christ as Lord, which is part of that two, or maybe I guess three-part requirement. I hope that makes sense. Now, let's talk a little bit about vocation, because something very interesting happened to me a few days ago that we'll get into in just a second. The idea I love, I've mentioned it before, is paraphrased from Thomas Buchner as, your vocation is where your greatest passion meets the world's greatest need. I love that because it becomes deeply personal. Your greatest passion, I believe, is given to you by God through your experiences and his Holy Spirit. So too is what you believe is the world's greatest need. And I think it's very important for us all to remember and live out the fact that not everyone is going to, nor should they, agree on what the world's greatest need is. It's going to be obvious to you. Let's acknowledge that. Whatever the world needs most is going to be as plain as the nose on your face. You're going to see it everywhere and see the lack of it as the root of countless other problems. When someone brings up any topic as to what's going wrong in the world, part of your brain will, more often than not, think, well, that would be addressed if we fix this other problem. Not all the time, certainly, but more often than not. And there are going to be a lot of people who think you're crazy, that the problem isn't that simply solved, or maybe even that what you perceive as a problem isn't actually a problem. But that's okay. There are too many problems in the world for one individual to care about, understand, or sometimes even accept all of them. We, as we mentioned last week, are not the saviors, and thank God for that. But he has given each of us a particular flag to wave, a standard to bear, to call attention and action to one or a couple particular problems. And you need to wave that flag, bear that standard, and draw as many people to it as possible because there are a lot of large-scale problems that need to be fixed that are going to need a tribe or nation to fix it. What I don't want you to get bent out of shape about is those who are busy waving other flags or bearing other standards. But people who are busy calling attention and action to other problems are not your enemy unless their cause is in direct conflict with yours. Meaning, you're waving the Black Lives Matter flag, and they're waving the Black Lives Don't Matter flag. But if they're waving the Oceans Matter flag, they don't oppose you. They just recognize that the oceans are critical to sustaining all life on the planet, and anyone who can be spared to help clean them up and keep them clean needs to be busy doing that work. What good would it be for racism to be stemmed only for whole cities to be wiped out by sea level rise? That doesn't mean that the ocean cleaners can't also speak out against racism when they see it, just that they may not be as actively engaged in that fight as you are. We need to be okay with this and need to recognize, especially as Christians, that we are different parts of the body given different functions and tasks, and our command given us by Jesus is to perform our tasks and obey our commands without worrying whether some other part of the body is doing their work. Now it's story time, because underlying all my little passions like riding and mountain biking is a much greater passion to see people freed from emotional and mental bondage, to be able to pursue their life in Christ and to excel at the work he has prepared in advance for them to do. For me, this passion tends especially toward women, which can be difficult as a man for other people to not assume I have some ulterior motive. I don't. For whatever reason, my sensitivity toward what I see as an overabundance of low self-esteem in women and especially how that is a product of man's oppression, is higher than most other forms of oppression out there. I recognize that black lives are under tremendous oppression as well, and have been for almost ever. And I could say that women are a larger oppressed group than the entire black community, since gender goes across races. But this isn't a competition, so size of the group doesn't matter. Instead, let me tell you this story. 
It isn't my story, except in what I heard and how I responded to it. It was the story of a black college professor who, one morning, parked his car and was walking toward a taco shop, I think it was, to get some lunch before classes. He was stopped by police because he matched the description of someone who had just broken into an old lady's home. An old white lady. During this event, this professor began to believe that he was going to die. He said he felt that way because he would not get into a police cruiser in order to be taken to where a white woman would have the authority to claim whether he did or did not commit a crime. He knew he didn't do it, had no reason to do it, and could not match the description except in the general terms that he was black, of height, and wore a knit cap. One, he said, was made by a friend specifically for him so it could not match any other knit cap. Fortunately, he was free to go, but he was so shaken by the entire event that he barely made it through one class before having to go home for the rest of the day. I believe him and his fears, especially in these times. Black men and women are constantly at the mercy of white people, subject to whatever they claim did or did not happen, and that is sickening and has no place in our society. This professor should have been able to explain his whereabouts, show he was a professor at a college, which he did, he had his faculty ID on him, and been permitted to go on his way. Any white professor would have shared a chuckle with police as they decided, okay, must not be you, we'll keep looking. The only reason this did not happen was because he was black. I can grasp that intellectually, but I cannot bring myself to sympathize or empathize with the automatic assumption that, because police were detaining him under suspicion of a crime, that he was as good as dead. As I said, I don't disbelieve his feelings or his narrative of events especially visible lately, is the number of black men and women beaten and killed because they resist arrest under circumstances that white people don't deal with like we've just discussed. So it sounds perfectly believable to me, but part of me still thinks, why couldn't he just go with them? So I recognize this conflict inside me, right? I believe, but I don't believe. I believe he felt the way he said he felt. I can't help but believe he may have had a point, given all our recent evidence in the news. And yet there's still that piece of me that questions. I know part of that is something I can work on. It's part of my blindness toward racism that I've held as a white person living in largely white neighborhoods my entire life, surrounded by other blind people. But it's also something that renders me less effective in this fight than I am in the fight for women's equality. And not even really just equality, but the attitudes toward them and their treatment in the media and in the world that might lead any woman to look at her passions, dreams, and desires and think, I can't do that because I'm a girl or a woman. Now, too, this isn't limited just to women. I do also want to encourage men, and I have this strange fondness for foreigners, especially those with non-English accents. Something in me wishes I could speak their native language and help them feel less like an outsider, help make them comfortable while they're in America, whether it's for a few days or for the rest of their lives, help protect them from xenophobic people's prejudices or frustrations that they can't speak English. For some reason, I automatically empathize with that tension of being in a strange place of not speaking the language, trying to figure everything out with that degree of handicap, and I want to help. The weirder thing is that of all the foreign languages out there, I really want to learn German, not something much more useful in America like Spanish or something, but anyway. So, yes, black lives matter, and I pray and respond if and when I can to my own racial prejudices and others when it presents itself in front of me, and I'm doing my best to pay attention and learn but I don't believe that is my vocation or calling. If it's yours, I implore you to get engaged to the greatest extent you can. I also hope you don't think less of me because I don't do more. We like to say that such and such is everyone's battle, but rarely is that true. 
not to the extent that we all need to take part in every protest or march or donate to every cause or do much more beyond resolving in ourselves to be more Christ-like and teach others to do the same. And if you don't believe that, I've got a whole host of problems I see in the world that I could turn around and expect you to protest for, march on, or donate to, and I could give you all the arguments for why it's the most important thing we need to do right now. Just like my legs could tell you why standing or sitting is the most important thing at any given time, but my arms couldn't care less. We, as the body, need to respect and value the functions of every other part and not demand that every part be the eye, even when seeing seems to be the most important thing in the moment. For where then would the hearing be? Anyway, I hope this all makes sense and you don't think I'm just being lazy or uncaring. Let's, for now, move on to the writing portion. Since this might be the last time I talk specifically to writers for a while, I wanted to make one last push for defining your audience. Because in today's culture, you'll probably hear more advice to just write what's in your heart or whatever, and your audience will find you. And there's some truth behind this. But that's more effective as a counter-argument to writing for the market. The market changes a lot and quite often, And within a week of sitting down to start writing your book, some other published book might boom in popularity and suddenly everyone wants more like that book. So it isn't that you cannot write a book to fit a market. It's just a very capricious and slippery ghost and it might be too easy to miss almost constantly. Instead, you write something that is what you want to read. And if fortune favors you and you write a good story, it might become the next bestseller and maybe the market will shift because of you. Where the advice goes wrong is when writers end up penning a book that no one wants to read, that perhaps part of the book is interesting to one group, but the rest of the book is not. I have several stories about this one. One from Brandon Sanderson, who started reading a book filled with the usual fantasy tropes. He got bored and eventually put it down. When he talked to the author, he discovered that no, it's not the same old, same old, because at the end of the book, the author flipped all those tropes on their heads. Well, the problem with that is that everyone who wanted a predictable, comfortable, trope-filled book were all disappointed at the end when everything reversed on them. And those that wanted a fresh take on old tropes didn't make it to the end. Like Sanderson, they put it down. Another example he gave was of an author who wrote what was the TV show Jag in space. Basically, military courtroom drama set in a sci-fi setting. They hoped to pull in everyone who loved Jag and everyone who loved sci-fi. But, as Sanderson explains, the Venn diagram went exclusionary instead. So only the narrow band of people who already loved Jag and sci-fi enjoyed the book, and it was a flop. It was just too narrow of a fan base. And let's appreciate for the moment that the professional agents and editors and publishers involved in this project all thought this was a good idea. So even those who spend their lives and careers and bet their retirements on making money out of this gig sometimes get it wrong. The final example was a book my wife read recently that was billed to younger readers, middle grade and YA, as a fun adventure story about a chipmunk. But fairly early in the book, the main character is out on his own, picking up chicks at bars and getting drunk, and later is trading on the stock exchange. I'm not sure even how that might be done well to appeal to a young audience, certainly not middle grade. In YA, at least, you can get away with longer time spans. This book covered the character's entire life into his old age. But in middle grade, most of the stories you'll find cover a day or maybe a week. There are some exceptions, but they're exactly that, exceptions. 
We've also talked before about clearly defining what it is you want to say to that audience. Again, less and less popular these days because authors started getting preachy. But every book has a theme and says something about the events in the book, whether the writer intends it to or not. We covered that in length earlier. Since it's going to do that anyway, and since we claim to be Christians who follow a God of order, I believe we should be a little more intentional about these things. But if you do find yourself getting preachy and your readers are getting turned off of your books because of it, maybe what you need to try is to just write whatever And when you go back through, just make sure there aren't any bad themes still in there. Kind of like the bad relationship tropes that we talked about last week. What a lot of these types of discussions boil down to, or at least hinge upon, is the idea of story that we also talked about a couple weeks ago. You've probably heard the saying, truth is stranger than fiction, and this is entirely true. Many things that work in real life don't work in a story. Certain speech patterns, while acceptable in actual conversation, are death to a story. We cannot put every uh and um and misspoken word into our character's dialogue. On a broader scale, it is true that circumstances sometimes seem to just work out in our favor in real life. At least they do in mine. I'm sure some people have no idea what I'm talking about. But when it becomes a theme in your books that events just happen to work out for your characters, it cheapens the story. It makes it too easy and doesn't resolve problems in a satisfactory way. And people are going to start to wonder why things even happen the way they do in your book or why characters go to the places they do when they end up not solving the problem in that place and the problem is solved by some other means. People, when they read, want to experience life in a way they haven't or cannot. And we all have problems we're trying to work through, right? Big life decisions and conflicts we're trying to navigate. So when the resolution of a decision or conflict resides outside the character, that's just not helpful to us readers more often than not, right? We have to just sit and hope circumstances similarly work out in our favor, and we do nothing proactive until that comes. As Christians, we know that the fight is the Lord's, right? So on the outside, it would seem like divine intervention should be a wonderful Christian trope. And yet God gave us Proverbs and really the whole of Scripture because a lot of what we need to know about life in the kingdom of God does not rest on specific new instruction from God. He gave us autonomy and free will, not so we could abandon it per se, but so that we might enter into relationship with him. And as we learn his will, we can choose to obey what he has already said. We see this from the very beginning when God gave Adam the rules for living in the Garden of Eden. And when the serpent tempted them, they should have remembered. And from then on through until today, he is most frequently seen imploring his people to remember. He has done it before. He has said it before. He does not change but stays true to his nature. We don't need to ask every time and we don't need to wait on him to move every time. We need to obey and act according to his will and he takes care of the rest. Sometimes, it is true, our action means resting and waiting, but a story filled with characters acting for no other reason than to fill pages with words, when all the resolutions come apart from their actions and sometimes in spite of their actions, is disingenuous and unhelpful. I would suggest that the only time this is acceptable is if you have foreshadowed the heck out of it. If you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, you know this can work, right? Frodo fails in that story. After all their journeys and trials and tribulations, they make it to Mount Doom and Frodo keeps the ring for himself. But Gollum is there, wretched, twisted, malevolent, sneaky Gollum, tries to take his precious back for himself. And in his overwhelming joy at having finally reattained this focal point of his life, slips and falls over the edge. Tolkien does several things with this, which is also part of why it works. First, he develops the theme that evil tends to destroy itself. The world God created is meant to run on his nature and character as we've discussed. 
And part of that nature and character is service to others, of putting others ahead of ourselves. Selfishness, then, runs counter to God's created order and is doomed for destruction. Second, that Tolkien does, is the theme of what he called eucatastrophe. Instead of catastrophe being the sudden turning toward evil, eucatastrophe is the sudden and unexpected turning toward good. Tolkien references Jesus' resurrection as an example of this, and we can see that sometimes in life as well, that when evil seems poised to overcome, suddenly it all turns out for the good. God is very much a part of that. The third thing, and I think perhaps most useful to us as readers, is that there is still work for us to do in order for chance to have an opportunity to play its part. What I mean by this is that by obeying God's will, we put ourselves in positions to be able to take advantage of opportunities that we would not be able to take if we were in disobedience. I mentioned earlier about the chance, the luck, of becoming the next bestseller and shifting the market to your kind of book. But for chance, luck, fate, or God, to be able to make you a bestseller, you have to first write a good book. Frodo had to get the ring to Mount Doom in order for Gollum to carry it away over the edge. If Frodo had given up or failed anywhere else along the journey, if Gollum had managed to get the ring at any other time, the story ends in darkness. But because Frodo and Sam persevered, because their companions fought and won their battles and marched on Mordor, only when all that obedience and faithfulness had been fulfilled was the ring in a position to be taken by Gollum and then to its demise. I think of this too. Only because the young boy brought five loaves and two fishes was Jesus able to feed 5,000. Yes, he can take our meager scraps and miraculously turn them into a meal, but we must have our meager scraps and bring them to him. We must be obedient and faithful to the kingdom life in order to be able to take advantage of the opportunities when they come. Sometimes God makes clear what that obedience and faithfulness will lead to. I think more often, though, he enjoys surprising us with more than we can ask or imagine. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and this Writing in Faith series. Not gone and not forgotten, but I hope, too, that you're as excited as I am to begin this new series on the Old Testament. Next Saturday, same time and hopefully the same channel, we're going to introduce the series more officially, look at why the Old Testament is important, and maybe be able to begin our first study of Genesis chapter 1. It'll be a message for believers and non-believers, for young earth creationists and big bang theorists. I hope you'll join me. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing. Keep writing.